CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for joining me for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, boy, the appetite for voting in Georgia continues to be uh, uh, really something to watch. We've now, of course, gone through three days of early voting. We've begun a fourth as of 7 o'clock in some places, 8 o'clock in others this morning. Uh, yesterday, according to the Secretary of State's office, more than 135,000 people voted in person which was even higher than the record that was set on the first day of, of, of voting of 128,000 uh, people. Um, and we now have figures from the Secretary of State's office that show us that some, with, with really almost three weeks ago until the, the election day itself, we have uh, almost 915,000 Georgians have cast their ballots, 377 plus of them, have uh, voted in person. Uh, Mail-in ballots returned are at about 537, 538,000. Uh, and we're still, uh, there are still over a million, a million 32,000 mail-in ballots that are outstanding. So uh, we, we continue to re- realize that we're going to have uh, record turnout uh, throughout this election. Well over now 10% of Georgians registered to vote have already cast their ballots. President Trump is going to be here uh, tomorrow. I want to talk about what that means, uh, because if he's in Georgia, it means he's not in some of the other states that are true battleground states. Um, And uh, we have a chance today to also talk with um, Alan Abramowitz, who I'll introduce in just a minute, Emory University political science professor, who one of the really great data crunchers, uh, political pro- prognosticators, and uh, Alan just uh, put up on uh, Larry Sabato's crystal ball a really interesting uh, study of how the Senate races are tracking, especially in relationship to presidential polls, and we'll do that as well today. So let's get right to the panel. Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins me because it is Thursday, the day that we set aside to have Kevin on the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Bill. It's great to be here um, uh, amidst these enthusiastic voters on your panel. It's, it, it is astonishing uh, how voting is going out there. Uh, I mentioned Dr. Alan Abramowitz, political science professor at Emory University. Alan, I'm glad you're with us today. Thanks for being here. We're going to take a look at a number of polls today, and I'll be especially interested in your response to them. In the meantime, you, how are you doing over there at uh, Emory, Alan? Oh, we're doing pretty well. We're working our way through the semester. We've got a few weeks to go um, and waiting to see what happens in the spring. Have I asked you if I have? I apologize for doing it again, but what are you teaching this semester? I'm teaching one uh, undergraduate course, American Elections and Voting Behavior, which, as you can imagine, is a very interesting course to teach right now. Oh, my gosh. I, if everybody in this listening audience could audit that class, I think they'd jump at the class and the chance to, <laughs> to, to do it. Um, we're well, also joined Zoom, today so you know. by the... <laughs> 
Oh, well, we're going to start Zoom bombing you, Alan. Um, We're also joined today by the newest addition to the team of political reporters at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, our good friend Patricia Murphy. Patricia, uh, you've started out strong over there. I see your byline popping up left and right on political stories. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, and thanks for having me. It's um, reporting in Georgia is like being a dog in a dog bone factory. There's just too much to too much to do at once, but it's all great. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And we're also joined today, uh, coming back to join us again, Ryan Graham. He's the chairman of the Georgia Libertarian Party. Uh, Ryan, uh, I was thinking about you the other day, is wanting to get you back on the show, among other things, because. Uh, your candidate for U.S. Senate was part of the debate on Monday with John Ossoff and David uh, Perdue, Shane Hazel, the libertarian candidate. I, I'm i not watching every single debate. Do you have other candidates in any of the other debates that uh, the Atlanta Press Club has been running? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me back. Um, but I also, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we have a public service commissioner. Um, we have two public service commissioner candidates, uh, Elizabeth Melton in District 1, which is, it's not districted, so it's kind of confusing to say that. Um, and then uh, Nathan Wilson for four. Okay. Um, well, it's it's good to have you join us to get your perspective on what's happening in politics. Uh, Kevin, let's start with um, just a look quickly at uh, early voting. Um, yesterday, Secretary of State Raffensperger, after after acknowledging that there have been very long waits in some precinct uh, polling places, some counties, some some people waited up to eight hours to vote and, and longer in various polling places. And although at first the Secretary of State's office said, well, that's just because there's so much demand, so many voters who want to get to the polls early. But it turns out that, in fact, they had bandwidth problems. They can't process. We went through it myself where uh, I early voted, as I mentioned on the show yesterday. It took five or six minutes just to get uh, the uh, iPad check-in machine to say that I was a legitimate voter. Now the Secretary of State says they're adding bandwidth. It should go more smoothly. But, Kevin, we still don't know what we're headed for as voting picks up even more strongly in the last days, uh, week after next, and then on Election Day itself. Yeah, our Mark Nisi has a story today uh, in the AJC that digs deep into exactly you know what was going wrong, where the check-in was taken five and six times longer than it should. And, and everyone uh, in officialdom keeps uh, uh, saying they're confident things are getting better, they're discovering these glitches, and we're all hoping that's true. But you just can't shake that feeling that they have, for some reason, election officials in key places in Georgia can't get it right. And then I, I think the enthusiasm for bo- voting is overwhelming. I mean, people waited eight hours on the first day of early voting. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, how determined a person must be or how much they must want to vote. Because, I mean, there are, you know, the early voting goes on for a long time. You can go home and come back tomorrow. You could do a lot of things. You could wait till Election Day. You could go ahead and get that absentee ballot. But people are just determined to vote, to have their vote count. And, you know, we, we for many years in, in this country, talked about how there was too much apathy about elections. And it, it seems to really be turning around. Alan, are you, if you track the early votes, um, are, are you able to look at any 
Can you read tea leaves is what I is the most basic, uh, I guess, question I have. Can, can we get any indication looking at the demographics of voters about how this election yeah. is moving? Well, we can get some uh, uh, idea of who the early voters are in Georgia and in some of the other states with early voting. Some of the early states with early voting now um, do have party registration. So you can actually track the numbers of Democrats, registered Democrats, Republicans, and independents who are voting. And what we're seeing so far in those states uh, is that the Democrats are turning out at a much higher rate in the early voting. Uh, in Georgia, we don't have party registration, but we can look at things like the racial composition of the early voters. And that uh, also indicates that it's a likely a more democratic group of voters. There's a, a higher percentage of African-American voters um, than uh, among all of the voters in the state in this early voting. So that's consistent with what we've seen in public opinion polls that indicated that Democrats are more likely to choose early voting, uh, either absentee voting or in-person early voting, whereas Republicans are more likely to prefer to wait to vote on Election Day. Uh, I know that's probably making some Republicans pretty nervous right now, Republican leaders, um, seeing these early numbers. It doesn't necessarily mean, however, that that's the way we're going, where we're going to end up uh, at the end. Again, we just have to wait and see um, how this continues over the next uh, three weeks and, and then, you know, actually what happens on Election Day itself. So, Patricia, if you look at the numbers that are posted on Georgia Votes, which has been just a terrific resource for all of us who are paying close attention to elections for a couple of years now, uh, here's what it tells us about the demographics of the people who've already uh, voted. Uh, 54% are white voters, 33% are black voters. Uh, that's a pretty good turnout for, I mean, considering we think the, the, uh, that th- uh, blacks represent about 30% of the total voting universe, uh, that's not bad, but we do know that uh, for Democrats to win, they'd want to see those numbers, those percentages move up a little bit. And let me add one more, and then please comment on this. What continues to be true is women are voting at much 12 points higher than men so far. And uh, that's probably a very good sign uh, for Democrats, given uh, the way that uh, we think polling has shown the Trump administration has been alienating, particularly suburban women. So tell us what you think about figures like that. Yes, well, I know a lot of suburban women who have been ready to vote since the day after the election. So I'm not surprised that those numbers are high. I think also if you just think about um, people's schedules, that to me makes a lot of sense um, that uh, that women would be looking to get it out early because they have a lot on their plate. <laughs> uh, also, Monday was a holiday. I think that might have uh, skewed uh, the early vote a little bit in terms of uh, who could get out. Um, but what I've really been struck by uh, in talking to campaigns is that they don't know exactly which voters are which voters anymore. And that's very new. There are new voting behaviors happening that are busting through assumptions about party, about gender, about um, about uh, where people live. So it used to be in the old days, parties knew where their voters were. They picked them up at their homes in a bus and took them to the polls. You know, you d- literally delivered them to the polls. They know where their voters are. Now they don't know exactly where their voters are. So they are, we can go through all of these numbers. We can go through who is showing up. We don't know what they're doing, and we're not going to know what they're doing until the votes are counted. 
Well, well, Ryan, I think a perfect example of what Patricia is talking about is looking at the age demographic of voters at this point. According, again, to Georgia Votes, which gets its numbers from the Secretary of State's office, um, voters between the ages of 50 and then 65 and older right now represent more than 70% of the, pe- the people who have cast ballots by mail or in person. Now, there was a time when we would have assumed that an awful lot of those voters were Trump voters. But as Patricia points out, the landscape in this election is changing, and most of the national polling suggests that, in fact, older voters are increasingly disenchanted with President Trump and turning towards Joe Biden, uh, uh, Ryan. Yeah, I think older voters are probably, you know, not super happy with how they see, you know, uh, what they think a statesman should act like, right? And um, and so they're probably turning away from from Trump from some of that because he's he's not really your standard politician, which which is what his base likes about him, right? Um, but what I wanted to talk about a little bit was that, um, you know, we talk about early voting and um, and mail-in voting, and I think some of the the normal things that you could see from that and and assume that they were Democrats, you kind of got to throw it out at the time, you know. Because everyone wants to do that right now. Uh, that's what half my family did. Um, I'm going to go in for early voting as soon as I see that there's not very long lines, which I think is next week. Kevin, you can tell me if I'm wrong or right. Um, but you got to kind of throw, throw that assumption out that they're all to be Democratic voters. The more important thing is that uh, it's turnout. Uh, voter turnout in 2016 was insanely low. And um, I think that's just because people weren't excited about the two candidates that they thought that were on the ballot, right? Nobody really looked at Gary Johnson uh, very seriously, which is a shame. But um, what ended up happening was the turnout was low, and that caused Donald Trump to win. All right. Um, I want to get Alan in here. In the meantime, uh, Sam, uh, Ryan, we're having you're breaking up quite a bit, Ryan. Maybe we can figure out if you should call in again, dial in again, and we can hear you more clearly. But Alan, pick up on, on, on this subject, and then Kevin, I want you to weigh in. Yeah, I, I mean, of course we can't be sure about who these people are, particularly in a state like Georgia where we do not have party registration data. But what we do have in Georgia is we have primary voting history. Um, so I'm sure the parties are tracking which uh, party primary these people voted in, if any. Uh, and as I mentioned, in a number of the other states that do have party registration, we're seeing pretty clear indications that Democrats are disproportionately voting early, which, again, to be clear, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way <clears throat> things are going to end up. Um, so, uh, you know, and the other factor to keep into account is uh, if you think about, like, who's the most motivated to turn out right now and, and vote? And generally, when you have an incumbent running for re-election, um, the intensity is generally going to be stronger on the opposition side. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing right now, that Democrats are the ones who are the most motivated right now to get out and vote early. Um, and as uh, was suggested earlier, a lot of them have been waiting for four years to do this, or almost four years to do this. So I, my guess is that this is a disproportionately Democratic early vote. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to end up being a disproportionately Democratic electorate once we get through with the voting all the way through to Election Day. Alan, I think your caution that um, let's not get too excited about the early vote, but instead pay attention maybe to what does it look like overall turnout is going to be like and what does early voting tell us about that? Mm-hmm. So here's my question. If turnout is really high nationally and really high in Georgia, what would you say that means for um, 
in Georgia for these key, these Senate races and obviously for uh, the presidential race in Georgia. Does turnout favor one side over the other, high turnout rather? Well, I, 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 the conventional wisdom, of course, is that, that a high turnout is good for Democrats um, because Republican voters tend to be more reliable when it comes to getting themselves to the polls. Uh, in, in this case, I would say that's probably true. Uh, but again, I think what we're seeing is a, uh, a high uh, interest in voting this year, a strong motivation to vote on both sides. Uh, from polling data that I've seen, what we're seeing is Republicans and Democrats are about equally motivated to turn out and vote for different reasons. For Republican voters, the motivation is to support President Trump. For Democratic voters, the main motivation is to defeat President Trump, less than supporting Joe Biden. So either way, I think what we're seeing is that there's a very high motivation to vote, and that's leading to predictions of a very, very high turnout. And what we're seeing in the early voting, I think, is consistent with those predictions of a very high voter turnout overall. Um, let's, uh, Patricia, uh, turn to some uh, new polling that we're seeing uh, in the state of Georgia. Um, one poll Survey USA, which has been commissioned by uh, 11 Alive, Channel 11 News here in Atlanta, to do its polling this, uh, this cycle, it pretty much tracks what all of the polls in Georgia have shown, which is that Biden and Trump are locked in a, a margin of error battle, although Biden tends to be up a little bit, a couple of points ahead of Trump, but again, well within the margin of error. And that Senate race number one, is the same thing. Uh, we've got Ossoff and Purdue uh, pretty well in a tie. And in Senate race number two, it's a little more, it's harder to get a handle on it, but it, in, in Survey USA, it shows Leffler, Collins, and Raphael Warnock pretty well bunched above 20% somewhere. Have I got that right so far, as, as far as you can see? Yeah, you've got that right. Okay, okay. But you wrote a story today that I, uh, I I was really glad to see because Quinnipiac, which is certainly one of the most respected polling uh, organizations in the country, they came out with a study, a poll about Georgia that I think will excite a lot of Democrats, alarm Republicans, but Patricia may in fact be one of the great outliers of this election <laughs> cycle. What did Quinnipiac show? So Quinnipiac showed a big jump um, across the board for Democrats. And um, with both uh, Biden over 50% and Ossoff over 50% and Warnock 10 point, a full 10 points up over where it was two weeks ago. Um, and all of that is extremely rosy. <laughs> it's not that it's not true. It's just a, <laughs> a very significant, meaningful jump um, and so when I tweeted it out, I did say, you know, we're going to have to um, really watch this space, of course, because it's so different um, from the other polls. It's the first time showing Biden with a significantly um, more than a statistical tie. He's up six points over the president. Um, also, it's the first point. It's the first that shows Ossoff significantly ahead of Purdue and then Warnock at 41 with Collins at 22 and Leffler at 20. Um, we're going to have to see if that is a durable trend or uh, just or an outlier. It's it's so different from what we've seen. You really have to take it with a grain of salt and just pack your patience because we need we need more data to see how how uh, real this move would be. 
Alan? Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. Um, in fact, I, I would say that this poll is almost certainly an outlier. Um, you know, it's showing a, a, a Biden with a substantially bigger lead than he's had in any other poll in the state. Um, and Quinnipiac polls in general in this cycle have tended to show Democratic candidates, uh, both Biden and Democrats running for uh, Senate, uh, uh, doing better than other polls have shown pretty much across the board. So I, I, w- I would be very cautious in, in taking, you know, I wouldn't read too much into that one poll. And I always tell people, you know, uh, look at the average. Um, you're going to be better off in most cases. Another kind of a red flag to me is when you look at some of the internals in that Quinnipiac poll, for example, they're finding that Biden is getting 36 percent of the white vote in Georgia. Uh, and no Democratic candidate in recent memory has gotten anywhere near 36 percent of the white vote in Georgia. In recent elections, it's ranged from 21 or 22 percent for Hillary Clinton to about 25 percent, uh, I, I think, um, in, in the uh, governor's race uh, in 2018. Um, for Stacey Abrams, uh, to maybe most of the recent polls showing about 27 or 28 percent. If a Democratic candidate can get 28 percent of the white vote in Georgia, they're going to be competitive um, because they're going to win the vast majority of the African-American vote. Um, so I'd say that's probably where the race is right now. It's, it's close. Biden might have a slight lead, but there, I just don't believe that he's seven points ahead at that poll fit. Ryan, here's what Nate Cohen, the data cruncher for The New York Times, said about that. He, too, believes this uh, poll is an outlier. Um, But I I think it's interesting and instructive to read what he uh, says, nevertheless. In this morning's Times, he wrote, Democrats have salivated over the prospect of turning Georgia blue for the first time since Bill Clinton won it in 1992, particularly after Stacey Abrams narrowly lost a contentious governor's race two years ago. But Mr. Biden's progress in the polls here isn't much of a surprise. Mr. Trump fared relatively poorly in Georgia in 2016, winning the state by only five points. That made Georgia less than two points to the right of North Carolina, which everyone considers a serious battleground state. Um, So he goes on to point out that the diversity of Georgia uh, really does suggest it's possible for Biden to win the state, but he doesn't, as none of us do, think the Quinnipiac poll uh, gives us particularly uh, useful uh, data right now. Ryan? Yeah, I'm just not sure how we take any polling seriously that doesn't include the third parties. Um, when Shane Hazel has has polled when he's included as high as 7%, um, 5%, 4%, like that's going to have a big impact on, on the race. And so when you exclude um, somebody, whether or not they're going to win, uh, who's going to take, you know, even in, in um, for Joe Jorgensen for president, I mean, she's been polling solidly 2 to 3%. And that is I mean, that's the margin of error, right? So um, you should, you know, I don't understand how, how we should take any of these seriously when they're not including all the candidates. Um, you know what? You, you raise an interesting point and one that I'd really like to address when we come back from a break. We've got to get our first break out of the way. But let's talk about how the presence of Shane Hazel, the libertarian, your candidate in, the, in Senate race number one, may have a, an enormous impact on what happens on November 3rd in that race. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. As we continue with Political Rewind, um, I just want to do a quick shout out to all of you who realized because of the way we promoted it that our show was preempted on the radio by the um, Supreme Court nomination hearings, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, But how many of you followed us over to our digital platforms, whether it was the website, uh, our podcast, um, any other way you could listen to the show? And it was really very, very gratifying to all of us that you followed us as best you could, but we are back on the radio and plan to be, I hope, uh, fully through between now and Election Day. Uh, Kevin Riley is here, Patricia Murphy, Ryan Graham, and Ellen Abramowitz. Um, So, Kevin, I I said before the break, it would be interesting to talk about Senate race number one in the context of runoffs. We know that Senate race number two, the dynamic of that race is such that there's almost certainly going to be a runoff. It's unlikely with 20-plus candidates in the race, anybody's going to get over 50%. But but we had thought that race number one could be resolved on Election Day, except now with with Purdue and Ossoff locked both of them under 50% in a basic tie the presence of libertarian Shane Hazel on the ballot could, in fact, uh, lead us to a runoff in that race, too. I suppose political nirvana for journalists and political junkies if Georgia had runoffs in oh. two Senate races and the uh, fate of who would control the Senate was was in the balance, right? I mean, that could at least theoretically uh, happen. My real question, and I suppose I could direct this uh, at Alan from a data perspective and then Patricia from, you know, just a uh uh, politics perspective, if we end up with two Senate runoffs, again, does it favor one side or the other, Alan? That's a great question. Um, first of all, I, I think there's a very strong likelihood that we'll have two runoffs. Um, uh, you know, because as Ryan was suggesting, the libertarian candidate there only has to attract two or three percent of the vote. Uh, in, in order to force this into a runoff, given the closeness of the, uh, the expected closeness of the race between Purdue and Ossoff. Um, so what happens if we go to a runoff? In, in, in the past, the, again, the conventional wisdom has sort of been that runoffs favor Republicans, that Republican voters are more likely to come back uh, for a runoff election. We know the turnout for a runoff election is likely to be much lower than the turnout for the presidential general, although uh, if control of the Senate is at stake and we're having two runoffs, you know, we're going to get a lot of attention. Um, there's going to be a very intense campaign, a lot of money spent uh, on, the, on those runoff elections, uh, one or both, especially if they would determine, you know, could, could determine which party controls the Senate. And we're going to have, uh, in all likelihood, a, a very strong African-American candidate in the runoff. And one of the problems Democrats had in some of the earlier runoffs is that African-American voters in particular did not come back for the runoff. Um, so uh, with Warnock in a runoff, uh, presumably, uh, I think that that indicates that we might get a stronger African-American turnout for the runoff, and that might help Democrats. So I would actually expect that we'll have, if we have runoff elections, that they'll, they'll be quite competitive. 
Yeah, Ryan, I, in your role as chair, oh, go go ahead, Patricia, make your point. Oh, I was um, just going to add on to that, that um, typically it is the Republican infrastructure that is such a huge boost to Republicans when they when it comes time to have these runoffs. And they have the, um, the, the Republican county commissions, the Republican chairs, those Republican breakfasts. They just fire it all up and get their voters out. They're just incredibly active, organized, and engaged. Um, and I would say for the first time in Stacey Abrams, we have somebody who is not on the ticket and in no elected position, but has a massive election infrastructure that she built in 2018 that continues to serve Democrats. Um, uh, in all of these races, and particularly in a runoff. So I think Democrats are really catching up to Republicans in a way that would be very meaningful um, in a get-out-the-vote operation and a runoff. Although I think if John Ossoff is in a runoff, he'll just think he's in a dream that he can't get out of because he had that 2017 runoff <laughs> that attracted the attention of the world, and then he lost. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be eager to figure out uh, a way to win and run off this time. Although we do have, it's absolutely right to point out Stacey Abrams' gr- ability to cr- uh, put a ground game into motion. But but the Republicans, the, the uh, Trump campaign is very proud of its ground game. They believe they've built a very strong ground game in Georgia and across the country, in battleground states especially, which they say will end up surprising people on election uh, day or in the weeks after election day, we'll find out about that. Um, Brian, I want to turn to you for a minute. We know that certainly the Libertarian Party, um, and this is worthy of a f- long, longer conversation on, on another show. But you have always had concerns about ballot access, um, as have many minority parties in Georgia. It's hard to get on the ballot here, but you do have a candidate on the Senate ballot in Shane Hazel, and. Um, how do you counter the people who believe that playing the role of spoiler is um, not the best approach to uh, fighting with for your candidate to have access? Well, we're really proud that we have ballot access in Georgia because it's widely considered one of the hardest states in the nation to get ballot access. We raised like 50,000 signatures in the 90s to get the ballot access in the first place. Um, and we've been able to recruit candidates for every race between then and now um, to, to maintain that ballot access by having electoral success uh, as laid out in the Georgia Code. So um, we're, we're super proud of that. Um, as far as, as acting as a spoiler, um, you know, we don't, we don't really see it that way. We see votes as something you earn. Votes aren't, um, votes aren't owned by one party or the other. They're, they're owned by the voter, right? And so um, when you... When you go out and cast your vote, you get to make that choice. And the thing is, is if if they want those votes, then they need to start, you know, the libertarian block. If, if you want that two to three percent that's out there, um, you're going to have to start talking about the things that we're talking about. And so that's really one of the strategies that we have as we grow. Um, and like I said, we don't see ourselves as spoilers. We see ourselves as uh, moving the moving the meter on policy issues that we care about. Well, I think what's interesting this year in the presidential election is that we're seeing overall that support for third-party candidates is down. Uh, we're not seeing the same level of support for third-party candidates that we did in 2016. And in the, the run-up to the 2016 election, uh, we saw the Libertarian and Green Party and, uh, candidates 
uh, polling, sometimes with numbers around 5 or 6% for the Libertarian, 2 or 3% for the Green Party candidate. Now, they didn't end up uh, getting that large a vote. I think the uh, Libertarian candidate ended up getting about 3% of the vote, and the uh, Green Party candidate 1%, and then there were a couple of other, uh, there's several other minor party candidates who got 1% or 2%. But the minor party vote was 6% of the vote overall in 2016. I don't think it's going to be nearly that large this time. And part of the reason for that, I think, a big part, is that there is so much of a focus on either supporting or opposing Trump. Uh, and, and I think for many voters, the primary uh, concern this year is, is going to be either uh, supporting President Trump and, and returning him for a second term or ensuring that he does not get a second term in the White House. And so there's a somewhat greater reluctance, I would say, to vote for a third-party uh, candidate. And there are fewer undecided voters as well, which is, which is also interesting. So there's less flexibility here. There's less movement uh, in the polls. In 2016, we saw quite a bit of shifting around, particularly even in the last few weeks. Uh, and we're not seeing that so far in 2020, and I kind of don't think we're going to see uh, that much um, movement between now and, and November. Yeah, I think increased polarization um, definitely contributes to a lack of third-party support across the across the country, really. Um, and that's worse at the top of the ticket. And you can see that in 2016 even, uh, or in 2018 even, with uh, Ted Metz receiving less than 1% of the vote, I received like 2.26%, which and, and that was the high mark in Georgia. But, I mean, less than 1% for the gubernatorial uh, race what people what people end up telling us is you know well gosh darn i just i cannot vote for your guy because that other guy might win you know and so right. you can solve that with some uh like ranked choice voting or instant runoff type thing right. um, and i think that really the state of georgia should be looking at that and we could save a whole bunch of money on runoffs too and save kevin and patricia from working their butts off for an extra month i'm, I'm with you on that Ryan. i'm <laughs> right. totally totally agree <laughs> I, I want to move on. Uh, Kevin Riley, Axios uh, posted, I thought, a really fascinating uh, study uh, yesterday, Axios being a, a terrific uh, daily uh, political uh, online newsletter. They created a Trump loyalty index for Republican members of Congress. Now, typically, we see voting records used to describe loyalty, and in fact, Axios does that. But beyond voting records, they also looked at controversial uh, issues and uh, situations in which the president found himself and how Republicans in Congress responded. So with that in mind, Kevin, <laughs> excuse me, Axios found that David Perdue, who in this general election has tried to maybe move a little bit away from President Trump to the best of his ability, David Perdue came in second among all members of Congress in terms of his loyalty to President Trump. And I'm going to read you the uh, categories and then open this up with you first, Kevin. Number one, they say that Perdue voted 95% of the time with Trump. Not surprising. But then they took it these situations. When it came to Access Hollywood, he was among the most supportive. When it came to the Muslim travel ban, He's in the most supportive uh, category. When it came to the president talking about S-hole countries, most supportive. Uh, when he came to him telling the squad, um, AOC, Elon Omar, go back uh, to your own countries, most supportive. 
uh, when it came to the Bible photo uh, <laughs> across the street from the White House, uh, he was neutral. Uh, he was also a, a, a little less supportive on Charlottesville, uh, the comment the president made about p- people on both, good people on both sides. Um, it's really, you know, it's one thing to see the voting record. It's another to see these controversial moments and how Purdue is lined up on them, Kevin. Yeah, it's a fascinating and ambitious effort by Axios. I mean, I would encourage people to really look at it and, and read the parts about how they how they set this up and how they went at it. In other words, the methodology, which a lot of us will overlook uh, on a lot of things. The methodology is almost as interesting as the actual results in this case. I mean, you pointed out, Bill, second most supportive member of Congress, but number one in the Senate. So, so let's be clear. Yeah. In other words, according to Axios, there is no one who is more behind President Trump than David Perdue of Georgia. And you have to wonder about, uh, and I guess, Patricia, I'd love to know what you think about this. Like, I wonder how his campaign would feel about that being a headline in uh, around the country. Well, we know how Kelly Leffler would feel about it. She'd be like, no, it's, I'm number one. What are you talking about? Like, I mean, Kelly Leffler on the trail literally says I have a 100 percent Trump voting record. And so in the old days, there was a level of um, embarrassment when a member was 100 percent with the president. It showed no backbone or no spine or you don't you're, you're, you can't stand up for yourself. That is not the dynamic with these two senators in Georgia. But for David Perdue, I do think it is hurting him and has made him vulnerable in this race against John Ossoff because it is so defined by the president. People are seeing everything through the lens of this president. And um, right now, this president is not popular with the majority of the country. And if you've done nothing to define yourself, even on these issues that are not these are not borderline questions. You know, were there good people on both sides? Were, you know, racism, sexism, misogyny, these are, these are not tax bills. These are not, oh, there's, there's no level of minutia in here that would really um, explain away support for this. Um, My one asterisk, my two asterisks real quick for, um, for David Perdue. Number one, he strikes me as the type of senator who believes you can get more done inside the tent privately than outside the tent shooting at this president. And I think this president has shown that's accurate. Uh, if you are supportive of him, you'll get what you want for your state. If you're not, you won't. Um, I think that's number one calculation. Um, and number two, many, many senators will simply refuse or lie about knowing about these things. And so reporters will catch them in the hall and say, what did you think about that tweet about the gold star parents? They'll be like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You know, they'll run in the, they'll run down the back hallway. They'll jump in the elevator. So to a certain extent, you get credit for picking up and answering a question about it. But I don't think in the end it's, um, it's strengthened his brand as, as an independent man of character, which is what he ran on in 2014. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I agree. I agree with that completely. Um, yeah, but what we're seeing here, I think, in the, in the Purdue is running a different, or uh, trying to run a different sort of campaign from Kelly Leffler. Yeah. But Kelly Leffler's concern right now is just trying to come in first among the two Republican candidates. She is in, in a battle for the Republican vote. She's not thinking about uh, appealing to independents and Democrats right now. 
she's got to get it, make it into the runoff. Uh, and then I guess she'll, she'll try, try to uh, change her approach, although I think it's going to be difficult for her to do that uh, because people might think that her main opponent in the, in the runoff is going to be Attila the Hunt. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, I, I think for Purdue, I think he, he's, he has kind of been soft-pedaling his uh, connections to Trump somewhat in the, in the uh, campaign because he's in a general election campaign. He's not in a, a jungle primary campaign. The problem he has is that the Democrats are doing everything they can to remind Georgia voters of his ties to and his support for President Trump. So the Ossoff campaign and the Democratic Senate campaign committee are coming in and spending millions of dollars tying Purdue to Trump, particularly on the issue of the pandemic uh, and his and, and his Ryan, that's of the pandemic. And Ryan, I apologize for interrupting there, Alan. And, and Ryan, that's exactly no, no what happened in the debate that your that your candidate uh, Shane Hazel was part of on Monday with John Ossoff and uh, David Perdue. Uh, the pandemic was issue number one, front and center, and the fact that David Perdue was lockstep with the president in dealing with it. Yeah, well, what I wanted to talk about a little bit there was about, bring it back to make a point about partisan loyalty. Um, and I think it's a real big problem in this country, actually. Um, when you look at, you know, the confirmation hearings and uh, when you look at the confirmation hearings and you can ask somebody whether or not they support a Supreme Court justice being confirmed or not right now. Um, and and whatever their answer is, you can kind of determine with some some confidence what their stance on abortion is, what their stance on criminal justice is, what their stance on um, a whole slew of disparate issues are. Um, that, I mean, that's a that's a major problem, right? It's, it says that we're not really thinking for ourselves. We're we're just regurgitating kind of what what news we're we're listening to, and yeah. Yeah, maybe the only person in the country whose views on those subjects you can't get at right now is. Amy Coney Barrett, the nominee for the Supreme Court, who's done a masterful job refusing to answer any questions that might give the American people some sense of where she stands on a variety of very important issues. By the way, as we take a break, I want to close out the uh, conversation about the Trump loyalty index by pointing out that David Perdue even scored one point higher in his loyalty to Trump, according to Axios, than Matt Gates, the Republican <laughs> congressman from Florida, absolutely one of Trump's most fierce defenders and most controversial members of the United States House. We're uh, talking with a great group of panelists. We'll have more on Political Rewind after this break. Um. Dr. Alan Abramowitz, uh, you posted a really fascinating study that you worked on for, uh, and, and gave to uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, which, by the way, is a terrific site for people who are really deep into politics and want to uh, uh, know what's going on. And what you basically talk about is, is looking at the Senate races, not just Georgia, but, but across the country, in terms of how... Uh, if through the lens of what presidential polling in the state tells us. And the, the bottom line, and I want to give you a chance to go into it in a little more depth, uh, is that based on how the presidential polling is lining up, you believe that, uh, that Democrats stand to pick up anywhere from one to eight seats in the Senate 
but most likely in the neighborhood of five, which would give them a small majority um, uh, in the Senate. So uh, just give us a little of what that what that notion of, of using the presidential polling to uh, uh, make some predictions about Senate races means. Right. Well, actually, it's entirely consistent with what we were just talking about before the break. Uh, exactly. With the, Georgia, with the Georgia race, which is that we're seeing that um, these uh, Senate races and even House races right now are being viewed through the lens of presidential politics. Uh, and candidates are being evaluated in terms of their support for or opposition to President Trump. Uh, and what we've seen over time is that there's been a growing connection between uh, presidential election results and both House and Senate election results. In 2016, every Senate race was won by the candidate of the winning presidential, uh, uh, who won the presidential race in the same state. Every one. Uh, and so uh, what I'm... Uh, starting from is the assumption that there is going to be, again, a very strong correlation between the presidential and Senate results in 2020. Uh, and in fact, there is a strong correlation in terms of the polling results. Presidential and Senate polling results are very highly correlated. So we can kind of use that to come up with a prediction uh, of where these Senate races are likely to end up based on where the presidential race seems to be right now. Uh, and when we do that, um, it looks like um, the Democrats are poised to pick up some seats in the Senate. Uh, part of the reason for that is just there were so many more Republican seats that are up this, this time. Um, and so, uh, and, and Georgia is one of the states where Democrats have a chance. Uh, it, it's in that very, it's in that lean Democrat category, so it's certainly, uh, it's far from certain. Uh, but it looks to me like Democrats are going to uh, likely pick up around five seats, but it could be less, it could be more. Um, you know, it could be as few as one a net gain. It could be as much as I think. I think eight is sort of maybe an outside uh, a number on, on the high end. But, uh, you know, four or five, I think, is, is quite likely as a net gain, which would give Democrats 51 or 52 seats in the Senate. Um, I want to keep going on that. And, Kevin, I want to get you in. But before we do, I know, Patricia Murphy, you, as a hardworking uh, a newspaper <laughs> journalist, have to go off and cover a John Ossoff event. So I want to let you know, you, you may not have to leave quite yet, but we're going to just tell you when you need to walk out the door, let me say before you do, thank you for being with us today. We look forward to reading your byline in tomorrow's uh, paper. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm I'm just going to go ahead and leave. Is that okay? <laughs> yes, no, I am we the understand. Boss. Uh, uh, I am the boss here, Patricia, and I say you can leave when you want. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, all right. All right. All right. Thank you, Patricia. Thank we you. will see your ass off piece in the paper. Uh, here's what's interesting, Kevin. Uh, as I look down uh, the list that uh, uh, we've gotten from Alan on this, uh, Alan shows... And Alan, please correct me, jump in if I'm wrong about this, but you have Iowa, the Jody Ernst race, leading yes. Democrat right now, yes. Democratic right now, which is fascinating. Um, South Carolina, you say, is still solid Republican, despite Jamie Harrison's enormous fundraising haul I there against I, I Lindsey don't think it's Graham. Solid. Yeah, I don't think it's solid. I think really? It's, it's I, it, Oh, I'm sorry. You're know. right. I apologize. I was looking at South Dakota. South Carolina, South you've got a lead yes. Republican. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see it now. It is the lead. Well, Kevin, just so, those states alone, Georgia, Iowa, South Carolina, leaning Democrat is a fascinating thing to contemplate right now. 
Yeah, oh, I'm sure sorry, is. South Carolina leaning. Yeah, Republic. well, I just think we're seeing all this stuff and we've got the president coming to Georgia where you have to assume, um, gosh, I mean, would he in the past would a Republican need to spend their time in Georgia at this point in the election? But, Alan, um, one of the things I always ask uh, whatever experts available to me, and it's you this morning, is uh, with all of this, including your Senate analysis, um, we know that what we really have is 50 small elections, right? That's really what we're dealing with. Give me a state to watch. Give me just one to watch as this goes on that will really tell me how things are going. What's your pick? Now, are you talking about the Senate or are we talking about the presidential election? I'm talking about both. I'm talking about both. What's, I, can only, I don't have time to keep track of more than one state, so tell me which one. Well, I'd say in, for the Senate elections, the state I would watch is North Carolina. Uh, I think the Democrats win the, uh, the Senate race there. They, they win a majority in the Senate. In the presidential election, I would say it's either Florida or Pennsylvania are the states that I would watch. If, if, and, and Florida, actually, because it's likely to report numbers very early on election night. And, and, if, and if we see uh, Biden taking the lead uh, in, in that count, because a lot of votes are going to come in quickly in Florida, um, that would be a very positive sign for Biden and a very bad sign for President Trump. If Trump come, is leading in that early count, it would suggest that maybe it's not going to be the sort of blowout win that uh, the polls are suggesting for Biden. Hey, Ryan, uh, here's another one that's uh, interesting in Allen's analysis. Texas, leading Republican, mm-hmm. not solid Republican, leading Republican. Um, that, too, is an earthquake in the making mm-hmm. if uh, it's possible for a Democrat to have some potential to win the state, uh, including yeah, like, uh, uh, Biden, of course. Like Kevin, I can only focus on one state, so I got Georgia on my mind, you know. Um, <laughs> so, but the, the we're a battleground <laughs> state, I think, is not, it's pretty huge. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Alan, we're, we're getting short on time. So let me ask you this way. Um, going back to the presidential— And again, based on your assumption that the Senate results are going to a large extent track the uh, 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 presidential votes, Mm -hmm. is is it correct to say that in your analysis, the electoral map for the president is shrinking dramatically? That it's he's finding few. The fact that he's coming to Georgia tomorrow, I know he's campaigning all over the country, but he's running out of places, isn't he? Absolutely. Um, what we're seeing when we look at both the national polling and the swing state polling right now is that uh, Trump is finding himself in a very, very difficult position. When he's having to campaign in Georgia, he's having to campaign in Iowa, he's having to campaign in Ohio. Uh, these are states that he won by wide margins four years ago. Biden is leading in the critical states right now by pretty big margins. I'm talking about Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Those are the three states that Trump narrowly won last time that gave him the White House. Biden is way ahead. Ellen, I got to cut you off. We are running out of time. Ellen Abramowitz, uh, Ryan Graham, Kevin Riley, thank you for a great conversation. Uh, I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, for goodness sake, and get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.